The most dangerous place you can be as a trial lawyer is to think you've got it figured out. I'm still trying to get better. I still have the passion for it. I believe in it. Everyone can learn to do what I do. And yet there's a group here that continues to get extraordinary verdicts. Trial Lawyers University is revolutionizing educating lawyers to be better trial lawyers. It's been invaluable to me. Trial Lawyers University, where the titans come to train. Produced and powered by LawPods. All right, well, we're here today with Ben Rabinovitz from New York City. I personally am pretty stoked about that because Ben and I have never met in person, but I've only heard the best things about him from so many people. So it's rare you meet somebody where so many people have said good things about them before you met them. So Ben, I'm really glad that you decided to come on and be part of this podcast, but also teach at Trial Lawyers University this fall. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. And I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to the podcast and also to teaching that uh, I will tell you the the drills workshop that we're going to be doing is very exciting. And I really think it can help a lot of lawyers overcome some of the problems that they've had. So we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. All right. Well, before we get talking about that, which is gonna be a little bit later, first tell us, how is it that you became a lawyer? I have to tell you, I'm the first lawyer in my family. I had a, uh, a father who was a doctor who didn't really like practicing medicine. He actually went into administration, unfortunately he died when I was young, but I had a mother who was actually a, uh, a nurse at one time in her life. And she had wanted to go to medical school. At that time, there weren't that many women who were admitted to medical school, but that's what her goal was. And I always thought, you know, I'd, I'd rather take a look at the other side of things. When I hear about the screw-ups that have taken place in medicine, when I hear about the problems that people have had, I really thought I could do a little bit more by becoming a lawyer instead of going the other route that some of the members of my family had done. All right. And going that other route, when you finally did go to law school, where did your career start? I mean, we know where you're at today, but where did it start out? So I started in the, in the district attorney's office. I was a prosecutor. And I have to tell you, I had a three-year commitment to that job, and it was one of the best jobs you could ever have. I found it to be incredibly rewarding. And I also found that I could actually take those skills that I learned there and really apply them to something that was good. I guess if I went back in time and I thought about where I had come from, my parents were devoted members of the NAACP wasn't actually that popular way back when, but I can tell you, <laughs> for me, it made a big difference. And I could tell you a little bit about that, but it was really interesting. But tell us how did it make a difference? Because that is very unusual. Yeah. That your parents, you know, white, and they're very active with the National Association of Advancement of Colored People. So when I was very young, my mother had really taken a strong interest in making sure that education opportunities were equal for everyone. And she was a strong proponent and believer in those statements that everyone should have an equal education. There should be no, no child left out. She really fought for this. And we actually went on marches when I was a child. And she was part of the administration that actually invited Martin Luther King to come to the school district. And he did. He came to the school district. And we actually marched with placards for equal opportunities and equal education for all. And it was something that really was a turning point in my life. I have to say, even as a youngster, I knew how important this was and certainly something that we could fight for. My sister and I were actually uh, both involved in that. We have very strong feelings about that. In fact, we have an old poster in our house with the, uh, the children, all different walks in life. And it was sort of unusual for a, a white child like myself to be supporting these interests. But it was something that we really believed in as a family, and it has never stopped. And how old were you when you were in this, involved in these marches? So this was, if you think about it, a child who was seven and eight years old, going on nine years old, and we were actually marching in in Hempstead, New York, which was a community that was mixed race. And it was something where all of the children in the neighborhood really were, were 
supporting the same thing. I have to say it was very unusual when I had moved to other neighborhoods where I saw that they were homogenous groups. This was not. This was a, a group of kids that were really, you think about racial diversity, this was a rainbow of kids. And it was great. I actually thought that the diversity really helped me as a, uh, as a lawyer throughout my career. It certainly helped me as socially to make sure that things were better for everyone. I really stayed with this throughout. And I have to say, I'm really glad that my mother had really taken a strong interest in this, my father as well. And it really has served me well throughout everything that I've done as a lawyer. That's you know, really so interesting because I grew up in a very homogeneous place, like you say, and my father was much older and rest his soul. But like to say, you might have been a little bit racist, you know, and so to, to grow up with those kinds of, at least in the household and things like that, compared to a more liberal upbringing, let's put it that way, just kind of the difference with our past take us, but kind of getting, but no matter what the path kind of had where we, as we become adults, where we think we should go. Let me ask you about being a prosecutor because I was a criminal defense lawyer for yeah. about 18 years. And most of the prosecutors I dealt with, I honestly, I didn't care for much because I thought, that, I honestly thought they were as a whole somewhat dishonest. And maybe it's, and, but that was where I was from, Oakland County, Michigan. You know what I mean? Like that was the mentality of prosecutors in that office of winning at all costs, hiding evidence, coaching cops. It was very frustrating because they had so much power and to see them abuse that power the challenge of it all. So I always thought in my own mind, like being a criminal defense lawyer would be a better path because you're fighting for the underdog and you have to be tough to win a lot of criminal cases. I mean, at least where I'm in a place that's well-to-do conservative, homogeneous, right. like you say, <laughs> people of color don't have a, not, it's a tougher battle in those courtrooms. So tell me why you believe that being a prosecutor for three years was really a helpful experience to become a great trial lawyer. For me, it was very different. The experience was one where I wanted as many trials as I could get. And I sort of had a nickname at the prosecutor's office. I was the dog catcher. All the cases that the lawyers didn't want, that the uh, assistant district attorneys didn't want, kind of ended up in my lap. But I didn't mind. I have to tell you, the ability to try a lot of cases all at once, where you have 50 trials in a matter of three years, we were always on trial. It was a continuous event. And you tried different techniques. You saw what worked, what didn't. I really wasn't one of those who was focused on winning at all costs. The, the goal was, let's try and do the right thing in these cases. So I was not a career prosecutor. In fact, when they interviewed me at the DA's office for the job, they asked me where I saw myself in 10 years. And I told them I, I'd like to be a, a lawyer trying civil cases, doing uh, medical malpractice products and general negligence cases. But I wanted the experience. I think they actually appreciated the fact that I was honest and told them exactly what I was looking to do. And I did. But the types of cases that you had there where you could move up, for example, trying a driving while intoxicated case at the beginning to a rape case, to a, a murder case, to a, an A1 drug sale. These were really interesting cases. And some of the best stories I've ever had came out of that office. So for me, it was really a, a wonderful experience, something I would never turn back on. And to this day, some of the best stories came out of that office. So you did three years there. And then after that three years, did you start your own firm? I came into New York City and I basically was trying to be a, a hired gun trying cases. I didn't know a thing about civil cases, but there were lawyers at that time. Mediation was not something that was a big deal back then. So at the time, trying cases was something where they needed trial lawyers to just go in. I have to tell you, I did not know a lot about settling cases because once we started a case in the prosecutor's office, we took a verdict. So I was doing the same thing as a civil lawyer coming in. All right, let's take a verdict in the case. And it actually worked because you 
got a lot of experience very quickly trying these civil cases, whether it was an auto case or a premises liability case, a products case, or even a medical negligence case. Those were the types of cases I was just working on. I was kind of a, a gunslinger at the time. Let me just try and do this. But the problem was I didn't have any time for myself. I had to take the next case that came up. Otherwise, I wasn't going to get any work. And eventually I decided, let me stay with a firm for a little while. So although I had gone out on my own, although I had worked with certain firms, I was of counsel to certain firms, I eventually landed at the firm where I'm at right now as the managing partner, Gergert Connison. And uh, I have to tell you, after, uh, well, it's been 33 years now, and it's been a tremendous experience and quite a journey. So you're the managing partner of Gergert and Connison. And you never wanted your name on the placard because like so many people are so interested in having their names up on places. I will tell you, we actually have uh, a lot of names on the placard, but we refer to it as Gare Gare Connison. In fact, both of the Gares are now deceased as well as Connison. Uh, the firm has been around for uh, 102 years now. It's one of the oldest plaintiff's personal injury firms in the city, but it also had a reputation of being one of the better, if not the best, personal injury firm in the city. And I have to say, this is where I wanted to be because of the reputation that the firm had. And the lawyers who worked there were really known as some of the very best. Bob Connison was a he was really one of the pillars of the plaintiff's bar. And uh, to work with him was an honor for all the years that I had worked with him. To work with other lawyers who were at the firm, equally good. I mean, just it was a, a wonderful experience. And I have to say, eventually, yes, as I guess as the old guard went out, the new guard came in. I suppose I, I'm in that category right now, having been there for so long, but I really do enjoy the work. I would never have turned it down. It's just something I, I can't recommend high enough to anyone who wants to become a lawyer try personal injury work. You can really work with the clients. You're not working with defense attorneys. You're not working with insurance companies. You're not working with large corporations. You're working for the little guy. And that's something that is really near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Well, you've been obviously at this quite some time. So in the time that you've been with it, I'm sure you've known, and you've known about great lawyers and you're amongst those that are at the top. I think you're part of the inner circle of advocates with- Yes. Brian Panish, who is a good friend of mine. And yes. I got so fortunate because of the pandemic. That's how I got to know him, just through webinars and whatnot. And uh, it was so great because my nephew had got waitlisted for Southwestern Law School. So he needed a little nudge. And Brian helped out a little bit with that, which was so huge. And now he just graduated from law school and he's taking the bar. So it's like, it's been like knowing him has been a blessing in my life because he's such a great guy. And and uh, I know you know him too. And uh, But all these great trial lawyers, you know, what would you say would be the three qualities or character traits of, of the greatest trial lawyers? So you're right. I do know Brian. Brian's a good friend. I think he's a, a tremendous lawyer. I know a lot of the lawyers who are in the inner circle, some of whom I've been teaching about teaching with rather way before I joined the inner circle, like Mike Kelly and Randy McGinn, some of the others who are just tremendous lawyers. And I would say that if you put it together, this holds true for me as well. What are the three characteristics? I'd have to say the number one characteristic, and I suppose it's for a trial lawyer, it's for a, uh, a corporate head, it's for a business person, it's for a doctor, it's for almost any field. That first one has to be focus, and you have to be focused on, on what you're doing. And what I mean by that is the ability to really sustain attention, to be able to focus on something without losing any sort of ability to focus on the exact thing that you need to do at the time. So focus becomes important. Of course, discipline is important and passion. So I think every one of those that you mentioned, whether it's Brian Panish, whether it's Randy McGinn, myself, Mike Kelly, any of the other lawyers who are really top-notch trial lawyers, they all have those three traits in common. When I say discipline, if you think about it, 
Yes, you could have focus, but are you disciplined enough to keep going? And what do I mean by that? Well, are you disciplined enough to keep going even when you're tired? It's sort of like um, taking a test that never ends because sometimes a trial can last two or three months and you have to be able to outlast your adversary, but you're doing it for a reason. And can you actually do it for the cause that you started? And that is to support the client's cause, to actually make sure that your client is the most important thing in your life during the time you're trying that case. And I could tell you, if you don't have the passion to do that, it's not going to work well. But if you do, oh, it'll shine through. And the jurors get it. Everyone gets it. Everyone in that courtroom knows that you have the ability to articulate the cause, their cause, like no one else. And it matters. And the results speak for themselves. Yes. Passion is critical. I mean, like, you know, it's like, and plus passion makes it all fun, right? I mean, because if you're passionate about it, it's not really work anymore because it's just a calling. It's just what you have to do. Exactly. I have to go work. I get to go work on this case. So this is going to be great. It's not going to be advocacy. It's going to be a work of art by the time I'm done with this, a persuasion, a work of art of persuasion. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. I think lawyers and life, we all go through like some events that you could consider them to be like crucibles like really challenging events in our lives that kind of make almost alter the direction of our lives in a way. And sometimes a case, like I had a case maybe about five years ago that didn't go exactly the way I wanted and, and it was a criminal case. And because it didn't go exactly the way I wanted and somebody suffered a lot for it, it really affected me deeply because I, you know, you work your ass off, but things don't always go the way you want them to do. And because of that, it's kind of got me focused on doing these trainings. And one day my big vision for this whole thing is to build a program to train all the public defenders in the country, because I think that they're very, even though you're a prosecutor, I think the public defenders are such an important thing and they represent so many people and they're mostly a lot of overworked. And for most people, it's their only lawyer they ever know. So that led, you know what I mean? That was my kind of crucible professionally, where it's like things kind of change that fork the road. Can I ask you what, if you have one, what yours would be? So when you say a crucible experience, the way I look at that is, what is the transformative experience that you had? And I think if I were to take a look at what is my transformative experience, it goes back to what my mother did way back when she was teaching us about the ability to really take into consideration those who don't look exactly like you do, or that have come from a different experience, or those who actually haven't been as fortunate as you have been. And how are you going to help them? What are you going to do to actually make their lives that much better? So. As a child, as I mentioned, yes, we actually supported those who were less fortunate to make sure that there were equal rights, equal education for all. But as a lawyer, I think I look at it the same way. Is there something transformative that I can do? So I now have the ability to represent people from all walks of life. And I actually, you know, when we select a jury, I always say to them, do you believe that regardless of a person's race, religion, creed, color, or sexual orientation, they should receive the fair shake and the same fair shake. And everybody always says, yes, of course. And then the next question is, well, do they receive it? And a lot of times the answer is no, no, they don't receive it. Well, why not? If it's not for lawyers like us, those lawyers that you mentioned before, Brian Panishes, Mike Kelly, Randy McGinn, any of those, myself included, would we stand for it if somebody wasn't treated equally? Would we actually tolerate that? No, of course not. So then you start getting into the individual cases where well, what's transformative? I could tell you something happened to me when I was a younger lawyer in this field, actually working on a medical malpractice case. One of the clients actually said to me, uh, Ben, can we have your assurance that you won't get hit by a, a bus on the way home? What a strange thing to say. What an odd thing for the client to say. And I actually stopped and said, let's talk about that for a moment. 
What are you talking about? And they actually made it clear to me that this case, their child who had been brain injured at birth, this was the only hope that they had to actually win this case to provide for a better life for their child, which they knew that their child could never provide for herself. And I understood what they were saying then. So was it transformative? Yes. Was it a crucible experience? Yes. Because now I know, what am I doing? Well, you're putting a whole lot of pressure on yourself to make sure that the case works out. And those things that we spoke about before, for example, focus, discipline, passion, if you're not going to do that, you shouldn't even be representing any of these people. We're not talking about a, a small potatoes case. We're talking about something that will affect them for the rest of their lives. If you don't win, look at what has happened. Look at what you have done. Look at what you haven't done. So to me, that is the crucible experience. That is the transformative experience that I think all of us have as trial lawyers. And like you say, you were a, a defense lawyer. Well, you had the same type of mentality where you knew if you didn't put your effort in, they're going to jail for a long time. They're losing their liberty. It matters. And it mattered to you as a defense lawyer. It mattered to me as a prosecutor. It matters to me as a civil lawyer right now. Yes. What we do matters a lot. People are like aren't nervous or get stressed about their kid. I'm like, really? How do you not get... You know, how are you, how are you sleeping if you're, you I mean, sleeping tremendously well if you're in trial because your mind is constantly working? Is it sleeping or is it being haunted by the, uh, the trial that you're on? Is it, you're never going to get out of that trial. You're working on it so hard that you're aware of it. Think about it before you even started the trial, during the trial, during day and night. And then, of course, after the trial, if uh, you just can't get it off your mind as it's going, it just keeps going. Yeah, it's almost a haunting experience. Let me ask you, I'm sure, how many lawyers are at your firm? We've got 20 lawyers at our firm. And they all do the same exact thing. Everybody's a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer. That's what we focused on, well, for over a hundred years now. And that's one of the things that we always will focus on. It's been really, really rewarding. I've, I've also had the opportunity to represent, uh, I know this is an odd thing to say, but a number of judges have actually come to me for representation. If they're in trouble with the, what's called the judicial commission, they need representation. So they see the trial lawyers out there and have been fortunate enough to have been asked by them to represent them oh. when they're in trouble. So very much like what you were doing as a criminal defense lawyer. Well, here, once again, it's everything to them. It's their judgeship. It's their livelihood. So I've done that as well. That's probably the only other area that I've been involved in other than plaintiff's personal injury work. Well, having 20 lawyers there and you being the general part, is it called the managing partner? Is that managing partner, yes. Managing partner. Yes. But I assume that you're in a position to do, and part of your responsibility is mentoring the young lawyers there. Yes. Would that be a correct statement? And, and they're fortunate because in today's world, I think the reality is that there's not that many mentors or it's not, it doesn't seem as that it's as easy to find a good mentor as it was maybe yeah. 50 years ago. I don't know if that's the answer or not, but I want to give you a hypothetical question. My nephew, his name's Harrison Ambrose Shields. He has a great middle name, which happens to be my last name, but let's, because he's just taken the bar, but because he's going to be out in New York too during for our conference. But let's say he meets you and he says, hey, Mr. Rabinovitz, I really want to be a great lawyer one day. In fact, my goal is I'm going to be a better lawyer than you, but I'm not sure how to get there. So I need some advice on becoming a great, but I want to become a great trial lawyer, not a great negotiator, not a great criminal defense lawyer. I want to be a great personal injury plaintiff's trial lawyer. What do you say to me? So the first thing I tell Harrison is this. I'd say, Harrison, first of all, call me Ben. <laughs> okay. Let's, uh, let's start it off right. And you don't have to call me Mr. That's all right. That might've been my father or his father. Call me Ben. That's, that's who I am. 
And let's think about what you want to do, because if you want to be a great trial lawyer, I want you to understand there are a couple of things that I can now reflect on that might either change your mind or you'll say, I'm all in. And that is this. Are you willing to give up other things to become a trial lawyer? Are you willing to sacrifice? Because if you want to be a trial lawyer and you want to be the best at it, let's face it, nobody wants mediocrity. If you're looking to be a mediocre trial lawyer, don't talk to me. Not interested in that. <laughs> if you're looking for something that's really good to really excel, to do something where you can actually make a name for yourself, where you can help your clients, are you willing to give up other things? Are you willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to have the weekends that I would otherwise have with a nine to five job. You're not going to have a nine to five job. You're going to have a job that's basically going to affect you every hour of the day. And it's going to affect you when you sleep. You'll be dreaming this stuff sometimes nightmares, but I'm telling you, you have to be willing to really sacrifice and really devote yourself with a focus unlike anything you've ever done. I had mentioned earlier that there are times when you, the way that I look at it is, it's like a, a final exam in a test that really matters that doesn't stop. It keeps going and every day you're tested on it. You get back at the end of the day, after a trial, after a trial day, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do more work. You're going to keep going. In fact, you're not going to have time off. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to be completely exhausted. But at the end of the day, when the verdict finally comes in and you actually realize that what you have done is you've provided for a better path for your clients, I can tell you there are a few things in life that are more rewarding. So if you're in, if you're willing to be that disciplined, if you're willing to be that focused, and if you have that kind of passion where you really want to change the lives and the course of someone, this is the right career for you. But if you don't want to do it, get ready. I'm telling you right now, this might not be for you. If it is, jump on it and don't let go. That I could not agree with you more about the sacrifice because, and it's like everything else in life. Everybody wants everything. Everybody wants the good life. They want to have a house and they want to take vacations. But yes. so few people are willing to pay the price yeah. and to sacrifice and to give up the partying, the drinking, just hanging out, the free time, you know, so many people get done with law school and they take the bar and they're like, I've made it. It's time to relax. And I'm like, you're so, you're so clueless. You couldn't be more wrong. You it's couldn't like, be more wrong. The rest of it was so easy compared to about what you're about to do, especially if you want to do something great, especially. So you're going to tell me he has to sacrifice. Yeah. Okay. He says, all right, I'm in. I can sacrifice. Now, what do I do that I'm willing, now that I know I have to sacrifice, I have to give shit up. But wait, I'm giving all this shit up. But what am I supposed to be doing? Because he's not going to start out in trial. So he's got to start out every day building skills, building things to get there. Yeah. You really have to make up your mind as far as what you want to do. When I started, I could tell you, I actually interviewed at some of the larger firms in New York City, the larger corporate firms. And I interviewed at the prosecutor's offices. And I had interviewed at a firm downtown Manhattan called Freed Frank. It is a very large corporate firm. And the, the partners that were sitting around the table asked me, well, have you interviewed elsewhere? And I said, yes, as a matter of fact, I have. I've interviewed at the DA's office. And they said, well, if we give you an offer and they give you an offer, well, what are you going to do? I told them the truth. I said, well, I'm going to take the job at the prosecutor's office. And they kind of looked at me and said, finally, an honest answer. And I kind of laughed, but it's really what I wanted. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I couldn't see myself sitting behind a desk all the time. In fact, that's really not where I want to be. I want to be out there. I want to be actually advocating oral advocacy, certainly trial work provided that. And it, it's something where I can tell you it is really rewarding. So what would I tell you to do? Yes, I would tell you if you can get a job with legal aid, 
at the public defender, if you can get a job at a prosecutor's office, if you can get a job at a governmental agency, even at an insurance company where you can get your feet wet in trying cases, do it. But make up your mind that that's really what you want, because I will tell you, trial law is not easy. It's not easy law. It's not an easy life. You really have to uh, put your time in and you'll suffer for a while. But I'll tell you the rewards in helping these clients, there is nothing like that. There's no feeling that's better. When you've done your job right and you know it and you see it in your client's eyes when they tell you afterwards and you just, you look at them and they're coming back and hugging you for a reason because you put the time in, you know that you steered it, you know that you got the result only because of your hard work and sweat. Well, I could tell you there are a few things in life that are really that are better than that. So sacrifice, get a job where you can get some litigation, get into courtrooms, into trial. Yes. Anything beyond that. Yes. Or have... I also think that the other thing that you can do is you can work to make yourself better. There are courses out there, like this course that we're doing right now, where we have the opportunity to teach. You could see the way that lawyers have done this. One of the things that I've done for a long time now, it's a, I suppose it's a competing trial school. A competing group, the National, the National Institute for Trial Advocacy, for example, I've been involved with them for, for years. In fact, I was on their board as board chair. I could tell you it's something where I really, I really believe you can actually get ahead by going to these types of courses. And that's why I like this course, what we're doing here, where you can actually walk away. You can take something with you. It's portable. So I can tell you one of the things that I always say in the lectures that I've done and I've been teaching for, well, just about as long as I've been a lawyer. If there's one thing that you pick up that helps you to win a case, your client is not just a little bit better off, but way better off. So you've actually done something where you can help yourself, you can help your client at the same time, you become a better lawyer and you become a better advocate. And it never stops because I consider myself a perennial trial student and I always will. And if I could learn something, for example, from Panish or Mike Kelly or Randy McGinn or any of the others who are my heroes in life, yeah, I'll work with them. I'll do that. But I also like the idea of teaching others and sharing with them. And I hope when you become, and I tell them this, when you become one of the senior people that you'd be willing to do the same for the younger lawyers, well, then you've come full circle. That's exactly what we want. Yes. Continue to pay it forward. And the reality is for those that much is given, much should be expected Yeah, to keep the world in balance. And speaking of teaching, Let's talk about New York City because I'm quite excited, maybe a little nervous coming to New York City because it's not my regular stomping grounds like California and Las Vegas where most of my community lives. But I'm excited to, because I love New York. Who doesn't love New York? But for me, it's a great opportunity too to meet so many new people because if I wasn't doing this program, we would be doing this podcast, right? And so you and I will never had a chance to meet or maybe not, maybe one day we would, but not this year, at least most likely. Yeah. Let's take a look at New York. New York's a, an awfully big place. Got a lot of lawyers here. I think what you're doing is really good. And I think that we can actually break it down by not just having the formal lectures, but I love the idea that you're doing workshops. And I'm glad that you're doing that because I think that will make a difference. I am excited for the workshops because like, I study this kind of stuff a lot. And actually this book that I've been reading over and over called Peak, which is kind of like the science of high performance and how to learn a complex skill. And they talk about medical training, how most medical training is lecture-based and I think it's called didactic training. I'm not sure the terminology, but this is a skill being a doctor and how not beneficial it is, but so much of training is lectures. Whereas the real thing is we need is more skills, not more. And lectures are great for knowledge and strategy, but the reality is you can't learn a skill 
you can't learn to play tennis by watching Roger Federer and you can't learn to play golf by watching Tiger Woods. Yeah. And so you have to get out there. You have to swing that club. You have to hopefully have somebody that can coach you and give you feedback and show you a proper technique or a mental representation that you're supposed to follow. So I'm very excited for this, to do these workshops. And I'm, and I'm really excited that you're teaching a workshop because I know you're an avid teacher and that you've taught workshops before. Because most great trialers, believe it or not, the people at the top of the game, it's been a long time since they actually taught a workshop, if ever. Yeah. They're just not used to it. Or I know this is going to be shocking, but they have these egos that are like massive. There's only going to be eight people in the room. How would I show up? No. I'm like, that's a great question. I, it can make such a difference. Such a difference. So yeah. you're teaching a workshop on cross-examination of experts. Yeah. So tell us about that workshop and what it is that people that sign up for it, because it's going to be a one-day workshop, which is going to be fantastic because that way you got enough time to spend with people, get them up there, get them, get them trying something and maybe not doing it perfectly and giving them feedback and try again. Yeah. But what is it, the skills that you hope to impart upon the people that are in this workshop with you? All right. So I happen to agree with you. I, there are times when, when lawyers who have these big egos who haven't taught in a while, yes, they could tell war stories, but war stories don't really help. If you think about it, though, really what you're saying is something that one of the authors that I like, Malcolm Gladwell, had spoken about, which is the 10,000 hours, if you remember, he had spoken about this, where you really got to put your time in. And all of a sudden, it almost becomes reflexive, where you know how to cross-examine someone, where you know, for example, what to do in these spots where other lawyers would be stumped. For example, let's assume that we talk about expert cross-examination. Well, a lot of times, the experts that are coming into court have far more experience than the average lawyer. In fact, some of them have made careers of this. They have a cottage industry. They're coming in day in and day out. Yes, I'm not going to call them anything uh, other than professional witnesses. How's that? Is that politically correct? <laughs> that is politically correct. Yeah, we all know what I'm talking about. And it's about. not disparaging of any other professions that may be older, <laughs> but are also... Exactly. I think it's politically correct, but not everybody has the same politics as I do, so... So yes, you happen to be right, the, uh, the oldest profession in the world, I suppose. But these doctors come in and they have a lot of experience and they know how to actually handle a cross-examination where they're giving non-responsive answers. Where, for example, they're trying to be so savvy and so cool on the stand, but there are ways of attacking them through a collateral cross. There are ways of attacking them substantively. And that's really what I wanna show in the workshop that we're doing so that you could actually dismember one of these experts especially a court regular, the uh, assembly line witness. This is the witness that I want to show you how to take apart. And there are ways of doing it. And there are certainly ways of doing it in a way that will work in every kind of case. I don't care if you're cross-examining a neuroradiologist, an orthopedist, an economist, an accountant. It's portable. What I'm going to teach can work in every case. And it does. And I find that the more I do this, the more cross-examinations I do of these witnesses, and there are multiple experts in every case that I try now, it's the same format, but I can take these witnesses apart. And we sort of walk them out on the tightrope and we keep walking them and setting them up. And then when we finally push, they fall into what I call the canyon of doom and there's no escape. And that's what we want to do to actually lock them in and we will set them up and they will fall. The beauty of this though, is if you're working with a, a group of, for example, six to 12 people, we can really cover a lot of ground in a day and really show them ways and techniques that will allow them to destroy the witness, not just hurt the witness, but to destroy the witness. And at the same time, to strengthen your argument for summation, 
because we have discredited a witness that should never have been put on the stand in the first place. That's the goal. And that's really what we're going to do in this course. That is going to be great. It just made me think about like cross-examining cops because they're like expert witnesses, right? When you get a witness who knows the answer, they keep saying, oh, I don't know, or I don't recall, but you know they know it and they just want you to have to go through the exercise of showing them the document to refresh your memory, especially if you're like federal court, they give you a time frame. This person is just trying to burn it because it reminds me, it's like the civil rights case. And the question that I was proud of was, officer, when you say, I don't know or I don't recall, but the truth is you do know and you do recall, but you're just not comfortable with how the truth sounds today in this courtroom in front of this jury. You would agree that that's the same as telling a lie. You can certainly do it that way. Or you could say when the witness says, I, I don't recall, well, reflexively, we could say, but then you can't deny that this, this, and this happened because you don't recall. In other words, there are other ways of taking it. And that's the goal, to show the different permutations, the different ways of taking an answer like that. If they abuse the I don't know, if they abuse the I don't recall, if they say, well, there are times where they're hedging, these are the kinds of things where we can pierce through that very quickly and we can show you a way to help your cause and strengthen your summation. That is going to be great. I am excited. Just to, I'm just going to, you know, just because I get to like be like the, the guy that walks around and hosts and make sure everything's going. So well, come join us. I will sit a little bit. And then you're going to be speaking, doing a couple hour lecture with your friend, Ben Morelli. And so yes. it's going to be on, I think, cross and closing, if my memory serves me. I've had the opportunity to lecture with Ben for many, many years now. And uh, there was a time when we were trying cases back to back. I, I mean, it goes back uh, three decades now. And I will tell you, he's a, he's a fine trial lawyer and and I've really enjoyed lecturing with him. I'm looking forward to this one with him as well. And many of the others, I know you have uh, some of my friends. Uh, I saw that Zoe Littlepage is participating and B.B. Fell, all lawyers that I've lectured with in the past. They're tremendous advocates. I will tell you, for me, one of the advocates I'd love to bring on someday is uh, a fellow by the name of Pat McCloskey, who was my mentor when I was a prosecutor. And I'm telling you, as far as the techniques and the abilities that he taught me, I still use them to this day. And I've worked with these things. And that's why I say I'm, I'm so glad that you have so many different lawyers coming in to participate in this program, because it's the kind of thing that can really open the eyes of any lawyer who's going to be there, regardless of the amount of experience, because we're all students of trial advocacy. And I don't care if you're Brian Panish, Mike Kelly, Randy McGinn, B.B. Fell, any one of them, we can all learn. And if you can't, maybe it's time to stop. Brian is like the consummate learner, like... He hired Roger Dodd, who wrote the book on cross-examination, yeah. to like train, like to coach him on his own cross, but also to coach his whole firm. That's what a, I guess, avid believer in continuing education. And uh, and I do a workshop, boot camp teaching, presentation, persuasion slash connection. So he sent some of his lawyers to, which I, of course, I greatly appreciate it. But you know, I mean, the fact that he's just constantly working on getting him better, himself better, and getting his team better too, because that's one of the things when. People always ask me, who's the GOAT? They mention these other names of other great lawyers around LA, especially around LA. I'm always like, BP, Panish. Like, why? I'm like, because Panish is not just a great trial lawyer, but he's a great coach and leader because he's got so many great trial lawyers around him. Yeah. The Rahul Ravapudis, the Spencer Lucases, the Shays, the, this young guy, Rudorfer, who I told him this guy's going to be a star because I did, I do like these case analysis webinars where they break down a verdict and watching what this kid did and this young man, he's like, he's like 40, but still, for me, he's a kid now. But anyway, to see what he did, I'm like, this guy has got the stuff. And Bash's like, all right, Ambrose, we'll just see how your boy's going to do. But since, and that he's like, in the last three months, he's had back-to-back eight-figure verdicts on tough cases. And But he's just such a good coach and teacher. 
He's like, I taught him everything he knows. I'm like, of course you did, Brian. 100%, 90% is on you, 10% is on him. He's like, exactly. But anyways, he's such a great guy. Well, that's uh, that's Brian. You know, if you think about it, Brian was a football player and he looks at it as a coach. Well, you want to know, there are a lot of us who are athletes. And one of the things about athletes is the discipline. Once again, you know, do you have the discipline to carry on? And yeah, good coaching is very important and certainly something that I try and do in my office. I actually hold classes in my firm to teach them trial advocacy, to show them what to do in deposition, to show them what to do in trial. And it's exactly what Brian is talking about as far as being a, a good coach and learning from a good coach. Better the coach, the better you'll be. That's exactly what we're trying to do. Yeah, when you say classes on, that's the first I've heard of a firm running their own classes interior, yeah. at least formally. So for class, just I'm curious now, on trial work. So how do you run a class on, what does a class look like on trial work? So it's really interesting. What we do is we take some of the things that have happened in trial. In other words, what has happened in trial? And there was, I'll give you an example. A partner of mine, an excellent lawyer named Rich Steigman, was on trial in a medical malpractice case recently involving a, uh, a failure to diagnose an infection in a knee after a total knee replacement. And when he was cross-examining the expert on the other side, the expert said, just in passing, uh, he asked whether he had reviewed all of these different records. And the, the answer was this. Well, maybe if I was paid as much as your expert was paid, I would have reviewed that. Now, something as simple as that, that answer, if you handle it right, you can destroy the credibility of that witness. So what we did was I took that and internally, now I set up and I bring in six or 10 lawyers from the office. Here's the answer that you got. What are you going to say? How are you going to work with this? Let's develop the cross. And of course, the cross would be, are you suggesting that if you're paid more, you'll do a more thorough review? In other words, you're coming into court representing that you have reviewed the records, but if you were paid more, you would have done delved even deeper. Is that it? And in fact, what you're suggesting is because you weren't paid enough, your opinion isn't as valid as somebody who would be paid more. In other words, what you're doing is you take a small point and you're expanding it and you're running with it. So yes, we do that with the depositions. We do that with trial. We actually try and show them how you can handle these areas. What do you do with the witness who says, I don't know, or I don't remember? How are we going to work with that? These are constant events that take place where we have the ability to show you, to make it reflexive in the questioning techniques that you use. So yes, we actually set up in my firm every week. It's uh, They know it's uh, Ben's class on Wednesday and we'll do it for an hour and a half to two hours. And sure enough, they go through this and we make sure they get it and they understand it. And then the next time they have a deposition where this comes up, I expect them to be able to handle that. That is a real gift. That's just really great. That's all I can say. Let me ask you this question. Ben, in your career, what would you say, like, as professionally speaking, what were the highlights of your career? The moments that you reflect back on that bring the biggest smile of things you've done, accomplishments, I don't know what it is, but career-wise. Yeah, some of these uh, are actual war stories, but I have to tell you. That's okay. You know what? I like war stories, so feel free to give me the war story. I love war stories. Okay. So I'll give you one that actually happened, um, probably, this goes back, ooh, about 12 years ago now, I was trying a case and it was a very, very sad case in which a, uh, a woman had been rendered blind. Her husband was killed and they were the parents of a, a 30 day old baby boy and they were going to pick the baby up. At any rate, I was opening in the case and I was delivering this opening. I was spending a lot of time on this, trying to, to show the jurors how important this was. And I'm about 40 minutes into my opening and one of the jurors just is looking away from me. And it was really frustrating. I don't use notes when I open. I was really trying to you know, let me get this guy's attention. What's wrong? <laughs> and, all, and all of a sudden I see the guy, he's just kind of leaning back, almost like he's sleeping. And I'm like, 
I'm completely frustrated. How in the world could this guy be sleeping? I'm delivering the best opening of my life, I thought. And this guy is just leaning back. And then all of a sudden, he falls off of his chair. And I realize this guy isn't sleeping. This guy is having a heart attack. And I turn and I look at the judge and he's doing nothing. I look at the, the court clerk and the court officer. They're doing nothing. This is going to sound crazy, but I jumped over the jury box and started rendering CPR to this juror. Now, what an experience this is. Here I am. I had a co-plaintiff. His name is Evan Torgan, also one of the best lawyers out there. who's part of the inner circle. He's trying it with me. He's also coming to TLU in New York City with us. Yes, he's participating. He's a fantastic lawyer. And he's there with me because he represents the husband's estate. And he comes over and he's like, you know, what, what am I supposed to do? Is get his feet up. You know? So we actually start rendering CPR to this juror. Well, you can imagine the, uh, you know, everybody else in the courtroom is uh, standing back and eventually the EMS comes, but we actually managed to save the juror. And the judge, who was a great judge, his name is Cousins, Judge Cousins in Nassau County. And sure enough, uh, the defense moved for a mistrial. And, and he said, uh, no, 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 we're not going to move for a mistrial. We're just, we'll just substitute another, another juror. You could imagine the defense lawyer's face. He, of course, was going to declare a mistrial. He just didn't want to let them know that he was going to do this. And needless to say, the case settled for a lot of money right then. Evan had gone up to the uh, insurance adjusters who were in the back of the room and basically said to them, uh, let me see if I understand what happened. The plaintiff's lawyers saved a juror. The defense lawyers didn't offer to help. Who do you think the jury's going to vote for? <laughs> you know, it was one of these things where, okay, this is the kind of thing where, uh, what an experience to have that happen in the middle of your trial. And all I could think of was, how could you do this to me that it's juror? You're screwing up a good case. <laughs> Meanwhile, we were able to get the case settled and it, and it worked out beautifully. All right. Now, fast forward three years later, I'm trying another case in front of the same judge. And this is a uh, one of the church sexual abuse cases. And we're actually going to take a verdict in this case. And sure enough, I'm delivering an opening statement and I'm about a half hour into the opening statement. And it's the same judge, Judge Cousins. And he interrupts my opening statement and says, uh, counsel approach thinking, what in the world is he doing? I'm, I'm just getting, you know, I'm just kind of getting started really going into this case and says, uh, counsel approach. So I started to approach and the defense lawyers started to approach and he said, no, no, just the plaintiff's lawyer. And I'm thinking, what in the world is going on now? So I approach the bench and he, and he says to me, he goes, listen, don't kill any jurors. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, now I go back to the jury, finish the opening statement. He's just, you know, kind of busting my balls a little bit. That happens. But it was just an experience where something like that has never happened to me before, where uh, imagine a juror having a heart attack while you're del delivering an opening statement. These things can happen. You can't prepare for it, but you do what you have to do. But it's something, certainly something that is, has stayed with me for a long time. What year was that? Uh, that was in uh, 2010 is when it took place. But So you have CPR training? Yes, I had CPR training. Thank God for that. A good thing. Yes, a good thing. Nobody else was doing anything. That was the craziest part. Right. And the fact that it's just, that is a crazy story. I know that things have been, because I talked to other lawyers, been kind of slow getting back to trial, getting on trial back in New York. How is it for you? Have you had trials recently? We've had some trials recently, but not like it was. I expect that by the end of the summer, we'll be back full steam ahead. And I have to tell you, I can't wait. I had hated the idea of some of the judges saying, listen, let's have these virtual trials. As far as I'm concerned, that is the worst idea you can imagine. And anyone who supports this, I have to just go off on this for a moment. Anyone who supports that is not a real trial lawyer. You can't cross-examine on a screen. 
this is great for a podcast, sure, but not for jurors who are going to evaluate the credibility of witnesses and for you to actually see what's going on in the courtroom as a trial lawyer, where we want to look at everything. We want to look at the defense attorney. We want to look at the expression of the jurors. We want them focused on the case. We want to see what they're looking at, what they like, what they don't like. So I have to say that idea of virtual trials where some judges were actually advocating for that, as far as I'm concerned, I hope that never happens. It takes away the majesty of the courtroom. It is too important to all of us. And it is something where I have to say, if you're a trial lawyer, you really do have to respect the majesty of the courtroom and what it means to be in court and the honor that you have in trying that case. Otherwise, I got to tell you, it's no longer trial advocacy. It's television. I know a friend of mine's just waiting on a verdict right now on a virtual trial still out of Oakland, California, because it was, it was either do it virtually like the judge wanted or wait another four years to get to trial. And the client was like, we'll do it. I'm like praying for you, man. Uh, yeah, I hope so too. But I have to tell you, I don't even like having the, uh, the virtual witnesses, but I guess we have to do that at times. Yes, we've had depositions. I certainly don't mind the virtual court conferences. I think it's a time saver or even virtually arguing an appeal. I can understand that at least. I'd rather be there in person. But for the trial, how do you examine a, a talking head where you can't even see what their whole body looks like? You don't know if they're ripping up a piece of paper while you're cross-examining them. You don't know what they're doing with their hands. You don't know whether or not anybody else is, is focused on them or not. To me, it's really taking away the advocacy. Can you imagine as you, when you were a, a criminal defense lawyer where you, you would actually see a virtual trial? Would that be pleasing to your client? I can't imagine it. No. Plus, I mean, I just don't know how you can connect with a jury through a screen. Right. I mean, it just seems like impossible. And from my experience and seeing so many great trial lawyers through the course of the pandemic and all these webinars I did and all these conferences I attend, it's like the only thing that everybody has in common between the Panishes, the Freeds, the Rowleys, the Mitniks was that their main focus in that courtroom is on the jury, on their connection with the jury. Why'd you cut these witnesses? I thought the jury knew enough. Why'd you cut these questions? I thought the jury got it. Just constantly about what the jury needs and being in tune to that because obviously they're the ones making the decision. So the connection between the trial lawyer and, the, and that jury, I think, is the most important part of the trial. That Yeah. Even during the pandemic, to pick a jury with a mask on, and that was incredibly frustrating to have to go into court to actually try and speak to someone. Did where you, you do that? Yeah, where you can't see their facial expressions. It's very, very difficult. I know. So that's not what we want. Right. They have to like read their eyes. Like, <laughs> just like a new skill. So you guys are getting back to, but when did you take your last verdict? I have to say, it's been a while since the last verdict. I've actually been on trial, but I've, I've not had the same number of cases. It used to be where I would take, for example, anywhere from three to six verdicts a year on a regular basis. Not at all like that since the pandemic. Uh, we just had a verdict um, last month in my office, but I have to say that there have only been two this year. The others have settled. There aren't that many that have, have gone. We always had more cases than that. And that's why I know based on my schedule, certainly starting September forward, I know we're going to be in for a lot of trials and I'm looking forward to it. Do it. Just not September 20th through 23rd, please. So that way <laughs> we'll be there. Present, hanging out, socializing, that kind of stuff, which is really important yeah. in these conferences. Cause like, you know, my nephew, obviously he's, he's my nephew, right? So I don't have any kids. So like, he's like my responsibility, you know what I mean? To guide his, his development as a trial lawyer. Yeah. And so, uh, cause I was thinking about like, what advice am I going to give him? It's like network. 
Like go to conferences, get to know the best trialers, get to know everybody, create relationships because those are the people that you can call and say, hey, Ben, I got this problem. Or, hey, Brian, I got this problem. And if you know them and you have some connection with them, they're more likely to give you some of their time. Whereas, I mean, you probably still would. Well, you know what you got to do? You've got to have Harrison come to the uh, to the workshop that I'm doing. He'll, uh, he'll like it. I will. Bring him in. He'll have him sign up. Whether he's had any experience, some experience, a lot of experience, I'm telling you, you'll get a lot out of this no matter what. It's really going to be that kind of thing where we start off with the basic building blocks and we go through advanced techniques. You're going to see. Look, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. I like what you're doing with this program. I think it's good where you have where you have discussion, lecture, and then you actually have hands-on experience. That's good. That's the way it should be. Well, it's a little challenging coming to New York as there's not a lot of conferences that come to New York for, I guess, a variety of reasons, but you got to challenge yourself. It's like you take that big trial on that you got to put a lot of money out for costs and you are not guaranteed of, of getting your verdict and your victory, but you decide to do it. That's what New York is for me. It's my big trial. I'm optimistic. Exactly. Come on over here. We're going to welcome you with open arms. You'll like New York City. We've got a lot to offer. Great food, a lot of things to see, and well, a lot of courts. Yes. And I'm looking forward to it very much. Well, Ben, thanks so much for your time. And I really look forward to seeing you in person and learning from you too. So I hope you have the rest of your day is awesome. I know it will be. And maybe, and I'm going to be in New York City next week. So I'll hit you up and see if you have any time and if you do, I'll stop by. And if not, absolutely. Let's get together. Maybe for lunch. Maybe we'll see what, how your schedule is. Okay. All right. Love to see you. And thanks again for the invite. And I'm looking forward to the program. Thanks a lot, Ben. Take care. Appreciate it so much. You too. Bye-bye. Join us September 20th to 23rd in New York City for TLU Live. We're going to have some of the greatest trial lawyers in the country coming from Brian Panish, Ben Morelli, Judy Livingston, Joe Freed, Zoe Littlepage, Rex Paris, and the list goes on and on. And not only will we have four lecture tracks, but we're going to have seven workshop tracks where you can work on and hone a specific skill in a small group taught by a great trial lawyer. The website is tlunyc.com. Ready to train with the Titans and set records with your verdicts? Register for our live conferences and boot camps at triallawyersuniversity.com. Start getting your reps in before the big event by going to tluondemand.com to gain instant access to live lectures, case analysis, and skills training videos from the trial lawyer champions you love and respect, as well as pleadings, transcripts, PowerPoints, and notes for a roadmap to victory. Join the group that continues to get extraordinary results. Trial Lawyers University, produced and powered by LawPods.